Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing mind-bending science fiction space opera novel, A Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is... That those sapient bushes wheeling around on six-wheeled scooters... Have been genetically programmed as a, to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, we seek different key insights from Hexapodia. And Brad, what are our key insights today? Today, we seek key insights about the end of the era of hyperglobalization. How is interested. it that the world is going to be different in the future than it was in the past? Because the great wave of increasing international trade and integration that we saw back, starting back all the way back in 1945, seems to have possibly come to an end. That's interesting because if you just look at trade as a percentage of global GDP, it really came to an end in um, in the financial crisis, which is now yes. you know a decade and a half in the rearview mirror. Yes, yes. So we've been living now for perhaps a decade years. out of globalization. Um, although there does seem to have been a sense, at least, that the world was still getting more integrated. That even though trade flows were no longer growing as a share of GDP, um, idea flows, services, some sense of the interdependence of value chains still seemed to be growing or growing at least in my mind, although I admit we did not see it in the statistics. Well, so I would say that uh, th this new paper... Um... I called up this paper. Now I don't remember the names of who's on this. Oh, Subramanian, Kessler, and Perpersi. is dead. Long live right. something or other. Yes. So what they show is that part of the reversal of globalization was actually just China onshoring its supply chains. So or, until yes. the financial crisis, until about 2010, I suppose, <laughs> a lot of globalization was companies outsourcing their cheap, labor-intensive, uh, low-margin production processes to China while maintaining the high-value component manufacturing, research, and design, and marketing, and services, um, and branding portions of the supply chain, which were yes. higher-margin things and often more highly technical things. And what you get mm -hmm. after 2010 is you get, um, you know, partly from government policy, but I think mostly just from Chinese companies wanting to make more money. Mm -hmm. uh, you get a this this phenomenon where Chinese companies go from just doing this cheap, low-value assembly work of slapping together components made in Japan or Korea to make you an iPhone, which is right. the 2000s globalization. They go to 2010s globalization was basically China learning how to make all these things and deglobalizing because it's no longer importing the components and the machinery from Japan, from Germany, from Korea, from Taiwan. It's starting to make all these things. And, and from America, it's starting to make these things itself. So deglobalization and the rise of, of Chinese high-tech industrial power are in some sense, uh, you know, to some degree right? the same thing. To some degree the same thing. Not It's not entirely because there were other things going on too. Drops in, you know, Europe stopped importing as much stuff because it got poorer because of the financial crisis. And there's a bunch of other stuff going on. America became more oil independent. Um, and, uh, and overall, there's this other... Um, 
paper and I can't find it right now, but it's it shows that FDI has been uh, has been um, less globalized and more block wise. So mm-hmm. it really it, so so FDI uh, basically democratic countries have been investing in democratic countries more and in in autocratic countries less and vice versa. Um, in terms of this this idea, everyone thinks of you know, uh, the, the the Chimerica synthesis is going to split and there's going to be these two competing economic blocks. Well, in trade, we haven't seen that yet, but in investment, you know, in, in who's using who as a production platform, we started seeing that in the 2010s, uh, right. this sort of block Just after the, and as a result of the financial crisis, as a result of Xi Jinping, as a result of something else. Right. So I, I think what happened is we started because of China onshoring supply chains and because of the blockization of FDI. uh, I think what we really started to see was um, this, uh, well, we could call it the mitosis of globalization. We could see the, the incipient first signs of the breakup of, you know, Chimerica and the, um, the, uh, the splitting of the world into into sort of blocks and that the thing is that that process still leaves room for a ton of globalization both within the blocks and you know finished goods trade between the blocks maybe or or i i mean just it, no, many things no. many things does chimerica end ica and that it's chai and then it's america or does yes. chimerica end aca because it's a chimera I mean, I think it, it definitely evokes the word chimera uh, or chimera as it may be. Probably uh, chimera, actually, since ch is usually hard in Greek. Well, it probably was, but you know, the Greeks haven't really built anything interesting since the like Acropolis, so they can just you know go fix their tax system and leave us alone. Let's say chimera or or chimera, maybe chim chimini chimcheru. Surely Hagia Sophia is interesting. Well, ethnic Greeks, perhaps the Byzantines. Right. Byzantines. What is what is Greece? What technologies has Greece invented for me lately? They really need to step it up here. That's certainly true, but you can say that of pretty much anyone um, who isn't kind of lucky enough to have been located on the North Atlantic or now on the East China Sea. Um, right fair enough the sea of japan yeah all right so, so anyway enough grease bashing an unstable non-equilibrium situation in 2007 um simply because the right that the that the manufacturing excellence gap um was way out of whack with the distribution of um way out of whack with the distribution of manufacturing you know and in the long run we think that since so much of manufacturing is learning by doing that you know manufacturing excellence cannot be that different from the distribution of manufacturing for that long um and that that was coming you know to an end um China was never going to just slap crap together cheaply. They were going to figure out how to make components. Although few other people did, right? 
Is that true? The other East Asians did. And, you know, the Southern Europeans did. Um, although Poland Fiat, did. Fiat still do not have long. Poland is learning it. Yeah. But, um, Poland's um, a lot richer than China. That's certainly true. That's certainly true. Malaysia did. Yes. My line is that, you know, um, the second tranche of, you know, the, the second tranche of China lives like Poland and is happy and is very happy to do so. But there's still a billion people in the third tranche of China who are out there. Yes. Um, Latin Americans didn't. And for a long, long time, the South Asians didn't and the Africans didn't. Um, but the South Asians are now doing it. We hope South Asians are now doing it. But, you know, there are fears of a more general productivity growth and convergence slowdown um, out there as well. Let's talk about those fears. Yes. Let's. So, so I'm a globalization optimist going forward okay. because I think that East Asia has basically completed its industrialization. Yes. But, um, and I don't think, I think that I don't see Latin America industrializing soon just because its population is too sparse. It's too far away from other things. And it's so richly endowed with natural resources that it has an incentive to simply sit there and be natural resource exporters forever. Um, we, and, we know that, for problem, example, Brazil, and the problem is that demand for natural resources is relatively inelastic. Correct. Um, right. Everyone just wants the so rocks. So what that you means know? is that technological change in Latin America and natural resource industries redounds to the benefit of the global north that consumes the natural resources. It redounds to the benefit of the Latin American countries as well and is being yeah. more effectively redistributed to the Latin American masses via increased redistributive policies over the last 20 years. And that's good. But mm -hmm. it means that industrialization is just, you know, there's not much incentive for it. You know, look at um, look at Brazil. Danny Roderick showed that Brazil's uh, import substitution industries converge very quickly to the um, to the global productivity frontier. And you can see this in things like Embraer, for example, right. which makes some of the best small aircraft in the world. Canada, right? -sized. Like All right. Embraer, Brazilian company, yes. it's an amazing manufacturer. But the point is that because um, it, Latin America never underwent the structural transformation required to have like much of the economy doing this. In other words, mm -hmm. it was always fairly niche. Um, and so, and so Latin America didn't industrialize, even though it probably, I mean, it could, um, it just, it's, it's comparative advantages to be a resource exporter. I mean, also look at Australia, right? Australia has the human capital and the financial capital and everything to be an amazing high-tech manufacturer if it wanted, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't want because Australia gets a lot of money from digging up rocks. Right. And that's, and that's what Australia rather, does. And you'd much rather dig up the rocks with the robots and send them off to China <laughs> and, Japan, and then use those to buy stuff. Right. To go spend all the resource and have a very vibrant, you know, service sector, good day, good day, mate, civilization, rather than having people waste their time in factories. Right. Okay. And mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, natural resource countries that are richly endowed with natural resources tend not to become uh, manufacturing powerhouses manufacturing powerhouses um and then sometimes you do see a flip so you see for example indonesia was almost entirely a resource exporter until suharto comes along 
he gets manufacturing going and then Indonesia rapidly industrializes. Then the Asian financial crisis happens. They deindustrialize and they go back to digging up rocks. And for now they may years. for right. And then now they may go back again. So and it's, now it's, it appears that they're going back again and they're doing quite well. And that's really encouraging to see that in Indonesia makes me think that maybe natural resource exporters aren't as screwed as we think. Maybe at some point Brazil will just become a manufacturing powerhouse and I mean, Argentina never will because they're Argentina, but but and maybe Brazil will and Colombia will, Chile will. Yeah, this idea of, right, um, manufacturing powerhouse. Yeah. Um, the countries that really have become rich have, except for oil exporters with low populations, you know, mm -hmm. all become at some point manufacturing powerhouses. Yes. Semi-manufacturing powerhouses. And so, I mean, if one hopes for... If one hopes for real convergence, is one hoping for a much broader spread of manufacturing powerhouses, or is one hoping for some alternative road to it? Um... You know, I mean, I think that you can say that Australia and New Zealand were always rich simply because they were the equivalent of OPEC, but not for oil, but for sheep. Um, and bauxite. Bauxite, touche. Um, um, they've yeah. done well. They've done well. And I think that what this shows is that you it, it's, it's hard to be rich as a natural resource exporter. Right. And you're more population constrained. So Australia doesn't have that many people. And New Zealand definitely doesn't have that many people. Um, quite a lot of sheep, but not a lot of uh, people. Right. And so what that shows, if you've got a rich in resource endowment relative to people, you can actually export a lot. But then if you're if you're an economy with high human capital and you know good economic institutions, your internal multiplier for resource exports, exports can be very high. You know, most mm -hmm. Australians are not, they're involved directly in mining. They, you know, like... Right. I don't know, like build houses for each other and like give each other massages. Like, and it's a good and very successful ridiculous sounding society. slang words and fight kangaroos or whatever Australians do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've got a really high minimum wage and, and, and wage boards. And, you know, it's a very equitable society and with, with just terrible sense of humor. And, uh, and they have John Quiggin, who just says like the worst comments about geopolitics in my comment section every week please make him stop what and has um, said, what has he said recently that's wrong oh man so it's like you know I, I was writing about how american manufacturing capacity has been degraded and how this right. has made us no longer the arsenal of democracy and so he went on this giant rant about how like ships are are, are dead and like we shouldn't make any ships anymore all we should make is missiles and i'm just like i could go on a long rant about like well where do the who like, carries the missiles where do you launch the missiles but, yes but where are missile and drone factories? I mean, like, you where are the launch platforms? Like, you, you don't have a ship. How do you launch the missiles? Yeah. You did illustrate it with a picture of B-17s on the assembly line, right? I did. Okay. I'm okay. very partial to the B-17 because my, my grandfather uh, flew in one. He was Yosarian. Oh, wow. He had that job. Okay. And thus suffering a 4% chance of not coming back on each of his 35 missions? Well... He became a lifelong alcoholic. I see. Yes. Okay. And um, they, they got their wing shot off. 
Yes. One time he he bent to tie his shoe, and yes. when he straightened back up, he saw that his head cushion had been destroyed by flack. Yes. Okay. Um, they had to land the plant the plane, uh, climb up and land the plane when the pilot and co-pilot were killed by flack. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, they, they one time they got a medal for getting drunk, wandering around, and bombing the wrong thing, yes. which happened to be valuable. Yeah. So that tells me a little bit about what World War II was. Like. <laughs> I mean, but you well, already knew that. You know the the. The U.S. bomber pilots, the Russian, well, everyone on everyone Russian, everyone Russian, and the Nazi U-boat crews were the people at the sharpest end, right? Um, yeah. Oh, and, then th- those people didn't even come oh, back. Like you oh, were just and 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 the Japanese naval aviation pilots, um, right? Right. Well, that that yeah, yeah you were just your, your your country had failed you at that point. Like they could have picked up those naval aviation pilots, but they're like, yeah. They lost. Yes. Die. All right. Okay. Um, well, people well, ask, like, why is Japan so nice and peaceful now? And I'm like, yes. Sorry. Natural selection. Okay. But I mean, we should. They were very mean. They were very mean. Pardon? Is, I suppose the fear was that a shift away from hyper globalization back to something else, you know, whether through the natural you know, closing of the manufacturing excellence gap. And so as a result, a bunch of reshoring on the one hand, or because of de-risking or because of blockization or supply chain resilience or populism producing tariffs or whatever, you know, that it really would rob poor countries of their ability to start developing the manufacturing engineering clusters that they need in order to actually get learning by doing and a good educational system and to converge to global north standards of living. Um, right. And I'm a, I'm the question optimistic. is, I'm not as, I'm still very fearful of this, but you, on the other hand, are a permanent globalization boom time optimist. Um, Hell Yeah. Simply because transportation costs continue to fall. Ha! You, you know exactly. You're thinking of exactly the model that is that makes me an optimist. Mm-hmm. That, it's the Krugman Fujita Venables model. Yes, that costs continue to fall, and they continue to fall and fall and fall and fall. You know, and ultimately, wherever something is most cheaply made, whatever it is, right, um, that is. You need someone to write a prompt to copy edit your kind of latest weblog post. And you find some guy on the beach in Sri Lanka who writes the best possible post and spins up for you for less than pennies, your own personal chat GPT-4 copy editor instantiation tuned to make Noah Smith's writing a much better version of Noah Smith's writing and not anybody else's. Um, right. And so you managed to offload enormous amounts of what would have had to be the copy editing thoughts in your brain to a combination of servers in Seattle where energy prices are low because of hydropower and human capital in Sri Lanka. And that we're becoming an increasingly connected world at all these levels. And we know that prosperity scales with the division of labor. 
And it can't be the case that the prosperity that's produced by the division of labor is shared unequally forever. I don't know about that last one. Um, all right, all right. So maybe the people seems, occupying the top spots to me may change. Have, but... Yeah, there it seems to me we have a question, right? That Burrito is, distribution is a thing. Yeah, um, the market is going to produce a Pareto distribution of wealth no matter what. Um, so how do we alter its parameters and make them less unpleasant? Right. I mean, back in the, um, when was it? Was it back in 450 or so that the Athenians decided that they wanted to build a hundred ton bronze statue of the goddess Athena fighting in front, Athene Promachos, and put it way up on the Acropolis, much bigger than the Parthenon. So you could see its spear, the sun glinting off its spear from a hundred miles away as you approached Athens. And, you know, to make the 100 ton bronze statue, you need 90 tons of copper when copper is lying around all over the place in the Eastern Mediterranean, and you need 10 tons of tin. Which tin in such quantities can only come from Afghanistan or from Cornwall? Or maybe Wait, really? southern Spain, but they weren't, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. And, you know, and Wait, people were getting tin from Afghanistan at that point? Well, they had to, right? Um, you can make second-rate bronze with arsenic, but yeah, the tin comes from Afghanistan and it comes down the Indus. Um, you know, why do you think Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro were on the Indus? Yeah, they're tin. I didn't realize they were trading that much with Greece. I didn't realize, like you know, South Asia and and the Mediterranean traded that much. Like, well, where the, do they the sail? They is, didn't have a Suez that, Canal. Where do they? Where the do they sail? Broad that bronze is the magic technology of my year minus two thousand, and you really hmm. need tin in semi-industrial quantities to make bronze. So you know, and it was the Bronze Age, so everybody was extremely like well-muscled and gay, right? No. Like it was all just a bunch of like like nineteen eighties Castro like shirtless gay dudes. No, like, it was with their the agrarian age. The it was of... the agrarian age. People were wiry and emaciated, except perhaps no. for the, the warrior elite. Um, so down the Indus and along the coast, <laughs> and then up the Tigris and Euphrates, and then you have this overland portage from the Euphrates to the cities of Yo know, to the cities of Lebanon. Um, and then down the coast and down the Nile and across the Aegean. And that's the Afghanistan part of it. And then you have the later developing Cornwall part of it. Okay. And the interesting thing is that Herodotus was in Athens at the time as an illegal immigrant trying to gain citizenship, you know, where he failed. That even writing his histories wasn't enough. And he was asking around, asking people, hey, where are these 10 tons of tin coming from? There was no O1. Oh, Herodotus was asking where the tin was coming from. Yep. And no okay. one in Athens seems to know, you know, it was bought in the market from Sicily from some Carthaginian who claimed it was from some misty islands that sank into the Atlantic and then came back up again periodically. Is it possible that like the the you know invisible hand Hayekian coordinating mechanism in the market was so powerful that actually no one in the supply chain knew where anyone else in the supply chain was or what anything they sold was being used for. It seems more years. likely than not that that, in fact, was the case. 
That's amazing. That There's maybe no... there was maybe there was some one from Carthage or Tartessus who had both been to Athens and been to Cornwall and kind of understood the whole thing. But you know, oh, maybe not, because it was un it was, you know, um dangerous for Carthaginians to sail east of Sicily. And very dangerous for Sicilians to sail west of Carthage. Um Wow. But now yes. that yes. that's and I'm a libertarian. I'm I'm a libertarian now. The market works. If like back in the ancient days, you had the entire like because in the in the Silk Road, people sort of knew by, by like the the fourteen hundreds Silk Road, people sort of, knew where Silk was from. Very sort of right. The whole point that Marco Polo made a splash, right? Simply because he was actually able to report, and admittedly, he mixed a huge amount of lies in with his reports. Mm. Uh, but people knew sort of stuff, but it all was only very very sort of, and it comes third and fourth hand. But yes, yes, yes. Um, it is a fact that you could have gotten the 10 tons of tin from Cornwall to um, Athens via something that required no more cognition on the part of the nodes in the network than you have with ants. Where did Egypt get the tin? Egypt had yeah, from Afghanistan. back in the day. From Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yeah. There's, Over tin There's a little bit of tin in the south, I think south in the Nile, but mostly from Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, and you need it. You really do need it. Um, okay, really so need it. so I just I just Google this. I just Google this, and this claims that there that there was enough tin from Crete and Cyprus, uh, you know, during the early Bronze Age to satisfy all their needs, and then later they started getting it from places like Somalia, Spain, and and uh, uh, India, which is probably more like Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yes, yes, there is some on Crete. Um, so you're exaggerating anyway. So, <laughs> but still amazing that they have those supply chains in some in some sense. Yes, yeah, yes. All right, all right. So back to globalization. Dig, you can't just dig 10 tons of brawn of high quality tin out of Crete in the year 450. Right. Um, you just can't. It's not there. I have never tried. And uh, you know. Um, okay, so back to globalization. Um, yeah. I'm incredibly um, bullish. I'm incredibly bullish here because I think that there is a virtuous cycle i think this is um who is this hirschman who talked about uh this this virtuous cycle between institutions and industrialization yes. where a yeah. bit of industrialization whets people's appetite for more and so they that start demanding true. that their government change their institutions to encourage more industrialization and you just right. keep having this go until industrialization doesn't make you money anymore uh, which yeah. is probably where china's at right now mm -hmm. um but then but so India is so, but now the you're biggest country like in the world. Karl Marx or John Stuart Mill in 1848. Yeah, well, were they wrong? And globalization is coming, and within 50 yeah. years, everyone's everyone will have been whetted for good institutions. And since knowledge is a public good, the whole world will be developed you know, before well before 1900. I don't know about the whole world. I mean, I think. If you take that that model that we all like of Krugman Fujita Venables and you split mm -hmm. the world into countries right. and you let it evolve over time, mm -hmm. even without a reduction transport cost, but especially with reduction transport cost, what you get is these waves of of industrialization where um, you know sort of each country will uh, each new country will industrialize faster than the last ones, and then will catch up really fast, and um, and then uh, you know. Each time this happens, there'll be a bigger global market for the next 
country. And so if you look at these countries as regions, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, all right, well, first, you know, we had um, Hello. And then eventually China, everybody provided markets for China. And then uh, now that China's industrialized too, now there'll be even more markets. Um, Of course, I know China protects their markets and is mercantilist. And so this may disrupt this effect. And also the splitting of of supply chains into blocks may throw a wrench in this. But I think this underlying dynamic of this whole process has been running for 200 years. And yet the peak of international income and wealth inequality came around 1977. Yeah, but I wasn't even born. So, uh, well, and so it. I've lived it didn't my whole life. Exist, you know. This, this is, this is Sidney Coleman's parody of the, of the um, Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory, that the first collapse of the wave function occurred only when he attained cognition, and before then, no wave functions had ever collapsed. Um. Well, I'll just so, let him keep on thinking that. Nothing was real. <laughs> so, yes. Um, obviously, this is true of me and not him. Because right. this is the first time he, the first time he had ever actually said this is when you told me this right now. Well, um, or say rather that it's all the, the rest of us are all inchoate dreams in your mind. Um until now. <laughs> I don't know. Am I a butterfly dreaming he's a plate of sashimi? No, you know. I mean, after all, I mean, you know that. Well, you know, did you have you watched Good Omens? I have. Yes. So the moment when Crowley realizes that all the galaxies he's been producing are simply pretty lights for the amusement of a bunch of monkeys on Earth <laughs> and loses it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Here's the thing. Um, India is gigantic, bigger than China. It's now, you know. It now appears to be industrial. And there's the worry that its politics may go very, very bad. Maybe, and but worse than China? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's... Uh, I don't think they're going to be worse than there? China, man. How many Uyghurs are there? I don't know. Um, I think there are more less than before. There are there more Indian Muslims than there are Uyghurs. Yeah, but like, um, I mean, yeah, if if you want to imagine that India will will, um, you know, uh, put fifteen percent of its population in concentration camps, but they won't. They won't. (laughs) Don't they think it's unlikely? But you know, I would have said countries have as countries get richer, they have fewer. Thirty. This is the country of Goethe and Schiller. Um, Wouldn't I? Blah, blah, blah. Look at America when we were industrializing. Yes. America had anti-Catholic pogroms. We did. America had, I guess, even slavery during the early part of our industrialization. America had segregation with regular terrorism and murder. We had the zoot suit riots riots in which you would not throw back a bottle of beer. Um, We had uh, just tons of, we had, you know internment camps and lynchings and god knows what we had all this stuff during mm-hmm. our industrialization period and yet you know like we got better yes. <laughs> like, and so 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 
I'm pretty optimistic about India because it's still, you know, a democratic country. I mean, just because Modi's mm-hmm. popular, you know, mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt was popular. Right. Like, just because Modi's popular right. um, does not does not mean like, oh, then then democracy's been canceled. I think there there's too much of a like there's be, there's been too much of a movement towards saying, okay, if these if these leaders who do bad stuff, if if leaders who you know, have rhetoric against minorities or or like oppressed minorities, uh, whatever, are elected, that means the country's not democratic. No, democratic. you're just using the word democracy to mean every yeah. good thing you'd like. It, it means it's illiberal. Liberalism yeah, and democracy are not the same thing. It is democratic, but it's an illiberal democracy suffering from the tyranny of the majority. Sure, but we were and, too. You know, democracies, the tyranny of the majority is a thing. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. Demanding that you know your democracy your majority play nice and be friendly it's a good thing to ask for but you shouldn't expect it and you know an oppressive heronvolk tyranny of the majority is one thing one of the failure modes of democracy but is it a long-term failure mode long-term failed and it's not is it that has to have terribly terribly big consequences for economic growth or, you know, it's not just because a country gets a tyranny with the majority going along doesn't mean that its economic growth is going to be substantially adversely affected. You know? Yes, that's right. Um, Ours wasn't. And so, yeah. so I think that people are mixing their ideas of like, A, whether India can industrialize, B, whether India should industrialize, and, you know... Um, <laughs> and see, you know, what India's politics okay. are. So we have a number of issues on the table. Yeah. We have a liberal society that provides a lot of freedoms for people to hang out and do their own thing and float their own boat and march to their different drummer. Mm-hmm. We have a democratic society in which an oppressive small elite minority is not lording it over everyone else in which there's a huge boss who's controlling other people and being brutal. Um, We have an unproductive economy that isn't managing to grasp the fruits of technology and industrialization. And then we have distributional failure modes that either somehow, even though you become prosperous, you know, malign foreign elites manage to grab all the prosperity for yourselves. Um, either a la Prebish Singer, you know, the world market's rules are, you know, rigged against you simply because of the luck of comparative advantage and supply and demand elasticities so that your technological progress goes to benefit someone in New York rather than someone in Buenos Aires. Um, and then internal, internal distributional problems that yes, your society is productive and yes, globalization is a wonderful productivity booster, you know, but you manage to have an elite that manages to grab pretty much all of the good stuff for itself. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you do see is that you see, you see the political things as ongoing problems, but that is indeed the human condition. Um, and as for the economic problems, you know, either a failure to grasp you know, technologies and take advantage of the global distribution of labor, or 
enormous maldistribution on the international scale or enormous maldistribution on the domestic scale. Um, you see those as not huge threats or to the extent that they are things as things that are not of actually first order importance. You know, because who cares if someone else can buy a Rolex and I can't, you know, all their wealth does, it allows, it allows them to, you know, um, wear slightly fancier but no more functional versions of the stuff that you have already. And it means a good number of people applaud you when you give enough money to construct some bizarre dorm in Santa Barbara. <laughs> we had to work Munger into this. Yeah, he's, yeah. He Kissinger died. outlasted Munger by a day. Kissinger outlasted, yeah, which I think is a sign that the devil rules. Um, <laughs> right. But Chomsky is still alive and Soros is still alive. And after that, all the like famous old guys will be dead. Who else is super old and famous? Oh, Buffett. 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 Buffett's the other there. super famous old guys getting older. There's some, but those are the most superannuated, I believe. I don't know. Anyway. Those are among the most. Super All right. So, so, um, uh, okay. So I would say, first of all, I, I hesitate to call problems failure modes. Ah, okay. Failure modes implies that a system has failed. Problems imply that it's things that can be overcome and ameliorated. But that's well, a problem is something we should work on. And a failure mode is something that we should go out into the street and start smashing windows and talking about how capitalism is of malign but unstoppable force. <laughs> Preferably with one of those really ridiculous old football helmets on, um, like well, the, the weathermen used when I they see. went out and smashed cars. I see. Okay. Um, I mean, like, on one hand, the weathermen were dumb, but on the other hand, like, probably that was one of the most fun things to do at the time because there were no video games, is just declare yourself a communist and bomb empty bathrooms and go out and smash cars on a football helmet Perhaps. Perhaps. with with free love and, like, you know, you're getting a hangout. Yes. And then eventually you all get jobs in academia. It was somewhat crazier than that, and some people wound up dead, but... Well, okay, but they, because they were trying to build a bomb and they died from an accident. That's just yeah, called extreme you know, sports, Brad. Patty Hearst did not deserve to be kidnapped and raped and brainwashed. No, no, no. Okay, so the Symbionese Liberation Army were the true uh, All right. psychos who deserved mm -hmm. to be shot as they eventually were. Okay. But, okay, so I guess the, the so point... So failure mode, so problem is not a failure mode. Yeah, problems are not and, failure modes. And you the, know, the, the problem, problem with China... The problem of illiberal democracy is a problem and not a failure mode, right. given that attempts to fix it that tend to produce a non-democracy that is going to claim to be liberal, and we know how long that lasts, which is right. precisely the lifespan of an, you know... Indira Gandhi. Well, of, I was going to say of an uncontained pork, but... Or that. Or that. Okay, but here's the, I guess, the, the other point, the more important point, mm -hmm. is that all of the bad tendencies of a society get less severe with GDP. And if you look at race riots or religious pogroms, you see those uh, get less common for richer countries. Um, war, I believe, gets less common for richer countries. 
Uh, and well, you also war see does become more destructive. Yeah. That is maybe the a bomb. Whether the a bomb effect is ultimately going to outweigh the fact that war becomes less likely. It's a race, and I don't know what the limit is. It's probably either zero or positive infinity of, you know, the destructiveness of war times the frequency of war. Okay. But the point is that poor countries already have nuclear weapons. They have and nuclear so weapons. Poor, India has nuclear weapons already. And so rich India is not, you know, going to necessarily be more dangerous than poor India there. And rich Pakistan would be a lot less dangerous than poor Pakistan. I believe it would. And, and uh, you know, when Pakistan has any desire okay. to stop being poor and get rich, give me a call. But um, I, I guess so the point I is... I pledge allegiance to Steven Pinker yeah. and the intellectual movement for which he stands. Well, well, okay. One species uh, self-domesticating pre-2015 prosperity Pinker. and harmonic convergence for all. Right. I mean, like, you the, say the, the point is that... The, the point is that like if you yeah. if you read about what India was like in in yes. the 70s and the 80s race riots and racial murders were just or religious riots and religious murders Muslim versus Hindu was incredibly common just very commonplace like you know and now the government has to gin them up now the it government has to gin them up obviously yes and quadruple per capita GDP and they won't even happen at all and instead it'll just be people saying mean things racist things on Twitter you and know as like as long as they did until they establish a constitutional right to the individual ownership of firearms there won't be lots of people just getting shot right and yes. America doesn't have race riots anymore in, in the in the Floyd protest there were some riots there were riots in Minneapolis and Portland mm -hmm. and uh, Seattle and and mm -hmm. LA but then when when pictures of the people doing the rioting started to come out and yes. every, everybody we saw they were all white people yes. um and they were we were like oh this isn't a race riot this is video games yes and so like anarchist video games go out and burn down a thing but like i'm not you know i'm not necessarily criticizing that uh, if that's your thing um so oh you should pay you should uh, buy an insurance policy ex ante so that the people who you inconvenience can clean it up true true yeah. and they did accidentally kill a person in minneapolis that was bad and, and then they intentionally shot a bunch of people in seattle and that yeah. was bad so I, I guess that is bad i'm just joking yeah um but so that's that's we don't like we don't like violent anarchy so but okay but i guess the point is that that in the, the richer country gets the rarer this gets and it doesn't mean it's impossible it doesn't mm -hmm. mean it goes away entirely but it means that you know people are just a lot more satisfied with life and have a lot more to lose and so right. i don't see you know i mean okay. i can see environmental problems like oh if india industrializes south southeast asia industrializes it'll destroy the world with right. pollutants and carbon and everything no, maybe no, 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 okay no. for one thing they are will be more anxious than the rest of us to limit global warming because they still need the monsoon they definitely still much need so. the monsoon they're going to be very focused on limiting global warming starting now um yeah you know richer south asia is not i think a pollution problem Mm. so then if you've done a remarkably good job of convincing me to be not happy i'd say but undespairing about the problems of illiberal democracy and the non-existence of a liberal non-democracy and the very narrow corridor for actually having a liberal democracy yeah and i think like third on my list was 
a no longer rapidly expanding global division of labor, making it more difficult to grasp the possibilities of industrialization, <laughs> then you really need to have the low wage manufacturing export sectors in order to judo move your way from low wages into manufacturing exports and engineers. And that that niche is rapidly going away because robots. I'm not so sure this is true. And I'll, yeah. I'll give you a reason. Okay. Um, Textile manufacturing. Yes. By which I do not mean garment manufacturing. Yes. Garment Very manufacturing is difference. insanely labor intensive. Yes. It's you you stitch together the shirts yes. and the pants and all that well, stuff. It won't Textile manufacturing insanely labor intensive. But at the moment it still is. It still is. Simply uh, because people with scissors and needles are so good compared to robots. Yes. Okay. Now yes. let's talk about textile manufacturing means you actually make the fabric itself from the plant or from whatever. Or from the silkworm. From plastic. Or, the or from the animal. Silkworm, silkworms. Spiders. Or from a silkworm. Okay, fine. Spiders. Spiders. Or how about spider okay. genes implanted in yeast? I don't care. The point is that you make a material. Spider genes <laughs> implanted in yeast. Okay. <laughs> right? No? Okay, with spider genes implanted in yeast. We can brew up or we can brew up spider Wait, silk. Which is, is yeast yeast is technically growth. an animal, right? It's not a it's not a protozoan. Yeah, yeah it's an okay. animal. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, yeast is an animal. That always that always made me that always impressed right. me. Okay. So then all right, but the point is that so textile saying, manufacturing and plant the spider genes in you so you can make your own silk. I've seen this movie, but okay, so... <laughs> no, no. there is the question of why Spider-Man goes around solving crime rather than spinning, rather than becoming an extremely high-paid you know, fashion designer. You really want to see, um, you know, I forget who plays Spider-Man now, like sitting there pooping out a bunch of silk fabric? Yes, you do. I shouldn't He's ask. out of the wrists. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. The point here is that yes. um, the point here is that textile manufacturing, making fabric, was yeah. always extremely capital intensive of an industry, and you before, know it's, it's, before you just needed a before you just needed a woman with hands and a weight. But yes, right. But even even in the age when everything was pretty labor intensive, yeah. you still had textiles textile. still had the big rollers. You know, yeah. they had all the big rollers and they had all the big little bird-to-bird things. You, have I don't even know what that's called. you had the big looms. Okay, I will give yeah. you that once you have big looms, things are pretty capital intensive. Yep. Yeah. So like 1800s, right? Yeah. And and all and countries, newly industrializing countries often started out not just with garments, but with textile manufacturing as well. Right. And <laughs> you get some employment because you need someone to run the rollers and feed the mm -hmm. thing in, whatever. Yeah. But then maybe a robot will do that in the future. But the point is that it was never that labor intensive. And yet it was still a thing that poor countries did. It was it was not, it was technologically relatively unsophisticated, but what you needed was investment capital. You needed, uh, you, it was a low margin industry. And the reason they did it was because they also had the labor intensive garment industries right yes. there. Yes. But, yeah. but okay, but and, and because it wasn't so technologically advanced that like you, it wasn't like semiconductors or something. Right. Okay, so but the point was that um, that Indonesia can do metal processing. They can do this, all the stuff China does with these gigantic like metal processing facilities. Mm -hmm. Blah blah. Indonesia can and will do that because Indonesia is where the ore is actually mined. First of all, right. and second of all, because Indonesia 
is willing to marshal large amounts of investment capital to do relatively low return activities if it provides lots of jobs and lots of revenue. And so that is a path to industrialization, even though you don't necessarily, it doesn't rely on all those people sitting there stitching the shirts. And so, so I'm, I think that a, there's a lot of industries um, that are fairly capital intensive that poor countries can still specialize in. I don't think we're, I don't think Heckscher Olin is like the only model of the world here. I don't mm. think that's the only thing going on. And that if you're doing and that once you can get your foot in the door with capital intensity. Just stuff. because the assembly line is no longer a labor intensive place doesn't mean that the actual capital intensive labor scarce thing where the enormous productivity is located that will have lots of ancillary activities surrounding it that are best done close to it that are labor intensive. And so having a low wage labor force that actually shows up on time and does the work is always going to be a powerful way for a poor country to start the engineering growth exports train going. And so what you really need to have is a labor force that shows up on time and can do the work. Yes. And, and there's other things you need to. Yeah. You need to not care so much about air and water pollution. Well, you need to care as much as a rich country. So right. Right. You need to care less than a rich country. Yes. You need to um you need to uh care less about profit margins. You need to care more about revenue and correspondingly more about revenue and relatively less about profit margins. So um, the point is that you have to have the first world CEOs who worry about their gross margin eager to give away things to you that are profitable. Yes, um, exactly. Because they want to make their numbers look better to have a bigger stock market multiple, even though they are probably throwing profits out the window for their enterprise when they do so. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. Something like okay. that. And then... Um, that's right. And you need cheap land because when you've developed, when you have an underdeveloped country, right, there's a lot of land, which is, is just, you know, not going to very productive use and nothing's really built there yet in, in America, yeah. a, a lot of our, our land is, is highly productive, quote unquote, because it's these houses that we highly value and the right. roads that we highly value that surround right. them. But like, you know, in, in India, there's a lot of stuff that's just, you know, yeah, a problem, slum. Though, you could put the yeah. people, those people in high-rise apartment buildings, and then you could use the giant sprawling slum area for a plant of some sort. Yeah, yeah you could, if you could do that, you would already be Singapore. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, but yeah, there is the problem that you need state capacity um, yes. to do land use planning especially if your ports ain't so great. So the amount of actual land accessible to the transport network is still pretty small. So that's a potential problem. But, you know, without state capacity, which is not just the ability to do infrastructure and reorganize your economy, um, but also have people's stuff not get stolen from them. Um, either right. by local thieves or by government functionaries, you really cannot do much. Um, right. All right, so now we're down to the distributional questions that you can get a country that is rich, but in which the income distribution is absolutely horrific. And there we can go two ways. Um, 
The first is that the price of a MetaQuest will be down to... What's a MetaQuest? Um, an, a Facebook VR rig. Oh. Augmented reality virtual will be down to $100 by the end of this decade. You're and spiritually younger than me. Be, you know more cool electronics. The, it won't be the Apple Vision Super Pro $5,000 version, but it will be good enough. And once you have your food, your clothing, your shelter, your friends, and your MetaQuest, and a comfy chair, and an AI that induces you to exercise, you know, basically you are satiated with respect to experiences. Yes. And so there's no real point in economic growth beyond that, and there's no reason to complain um, uh -huh. about how someone else has more wealth and thus more social power than you. And maybe, you know, that means their virtual world is retina resolution while yours is somewhat grainy. Um, but still, you know, you get to rule the universe um, on God mode much better just as well as they do um, because they're spending their time at the office doing boring things and trying to manipulate people. Um, while you're <laughs> happy being your best self. Now we're really just getting into Charles Strauss territory. We should have him on the podcast. We should definitely have him on the podcast. Charles Strauss would be the ideal guest. Yes. All right. Um, let me end he this. May well, except he may well say you're taking all of this too seriously. Um, he's probably right. These are plot engines rather than. But yeah, but there is, that is, I've always thought that Robert Gordon's real point wasn't that technological progress has slowed down, but rather that it means less. You know, when industrializing and doubling your standard of living means a diff means 30 years on life expectancy. That's a lot bigger deal than when it means whatever it means nowadays. Yeah. But, but this is really more Dietz Volrath, his thesis. Yeah. Okay. Um all right. So let's so, get let's get Dietz Volrath on in a couple of weeks to talk about satiation and income and wealth inequality and does it all matter? Let's do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I'm I just want to close by saying I'm I'm optimistic about globalization because India has more people in it than Africa, the entire continent, yes. and yeah. um, and then in addition to India, there's Bangladesh, which is huge, Indonesia, which is huge, the mm -hmm. Philippines, which is pretty big, Vietnam, which is pretty big. Yep. And um, and just those just those um, five countries by themselves are like what two billion people. Mm -hmm. If those industrialize, that you know, you can go down a list of smaller countries and say, well, okay, I, you know, Burkina Faso didn't industrialize, Bolivia right. didn't industrialize, and right. and just right. before you get out of the bees. Um, but, so this but, is the, the circle from Japan to Pakistan and down to Indonesia and up to Mongolia is and always has been half the human race. The Valerie Price circle. Half of this complex, of this yes. East and South Asian complex, has industrialized over the past generation. You know, and the other half of the East Asian part is rapidly industrializing now, and South Asia is about to join it. Yes. So by 2060, we'll be looking at a world in which there is a South America doing its thing. There is a Latin America doing its thing. There is a Middle East doing its thing. But that whatever those things may be, 
Yeah. But that the, the permanent problem that people will no longer say that there is a rich first world and a poor third world or poor emerging markets, people will say that the task of development has been accomplished, except for some places that have stubborn institutional and cultural problems that we need. I would to say Latin America and the Middle East. By the way, one interesting thing is that if you graph the average per capita GDP at PPP of Latin America and the Middle East, it tracks yeah. it itself exactly mm -hmm. like those two regions per capita GDP yes. is like the same series mm -hmm. and it's just it's just like you know like moderately institutionally effective resource exporters um mm -hmm. but then essentially after the other half of the of the density of the dense circle of the Asia yes. circle yes. develops and that that is the task that development is the task of the remainder of the first half of the century in the latter half of the century, attention will turn to Africa, which will be the only place with any young people and the only place where labor intensive, you know, industrial development from poverty to, to mm -hmm. middle class will really be possible. And then Africa will be the last development puzzle to solve. And then after that, if Brazil decides to get a bit richer building jets instead of, you know, digging up rocks, that'll be cool. But really, after Africa is is industrialized up to middle income. The, the job will be done like Marx and Mill will have improved right and will be done. Mm -hmm. And at that point, at, at that point, we can still keep improving. There will be lots of things left to improve, but the basic mission of industrialization to uplift the human world out of poverty will be then complete. So we have our title, the forthcoming successful development of the Asia circle and de-hyperglobalization. Yes. I love that long title. What do you think? Am I, I, I know, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time declaiming on this episode, but do you think I'm full of shit That's or do you think good. this is um, It's always hazardous to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, yes, you're declaiming, but you make a very good case, right? Um, a very, very, very good case indeed. Yeah, and I think there's every reason to be much more hopeful about the future. Yeah, then people should be kind of right now. Um, that yes, we have a lots of problems, and yes, that you know, global warming is going to be extraordinarily expensive to deal with, you know, especially in South Asia. But there is, I'd say, a good reason to think that the next generation will be for the world better and more impressive than the last generation. And the last generation was on a world scale, you know, better and more impressive than was the post-World War II 30 glorious years in the North Atlantic, 30 glorious years in the North Atlantic. Yeah. Um, so with that, I think I've just given you my key insight. I like that key insight. I think I gave my key insight with the sort of... Uh... You know the idea that that we're on track to finish the mission of global industrialization. Yes. Okay, We've, and as always, Hexapodia is the key insight. This has been Noah Smith's and Brad DeLong's Hexapodia podcast on the forthcoming successful development of the Asia Circle and hyperglobalization. The hyperglobalization. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> and goodbye. And goodbye.